Hello and welcome to the very first edition of the Friday the 13th podcast, starring myself, John Evans, and my co-host, Mike Kuchiak. How are you today, Mike? I'm, I'm fantastic. You know, John, if we the first thing that we do, we need like a cool title for this. We do. You know what I mean? Do. Friday the awesome teenth. For right now, you know, the you know, this is what it is as a Friday the 13th podcast in which every every episode we're going to go in depth conversation about one of the films in this seminal horror genre. So, Mike, what are we doing here? What is it about this series that is so special to us and to other people? Why did we choose to devote our time to this endeavor? I'll start with you. What's the series mean to you? Given the pros and minuses of the individual films, I think that when you brush all that aside, you find that the Friday the 13th movies are synonymous with horror as a whole. And uh, horror as a uh, specific time and genre. I mean, you can't talk about, you know, the 80s slasher horror movies without talking about Friday the 13th. That's the 800-pound girl in the room. I mean, obviously, we can talk about Halloween, but I would say that the sequels of Halloween uh, are fewer in number and of a lower overall quality. You know, whereas Friday the 13th is, I mean, that's the first stop. Yeah, I mean, if someone yeah. said, you know, hey, what would you do to introduce me to 80s horror? You know, where else would you start? You know, everything, I, I, even though Friday the 13th is at core derivative on some levels of other things, but I think that everything else is following in its way. I don't know if quality or consistency are exactly the right words for it, but, like, you know, there's many interesting movies in this series. Like, there's not any... That I think will be will get nothing out of whether it's you know just a good laugh or sort of nostalgia, perhaps. But there's just entertainment value in each of these films, and I do think that's pretty hard to do with ten movies. We're counting, by the way. We're going to look at everything with Jason in it, including the reboot in 2009, and of course Freddy versus Jason. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I yeah. Oh, actually, movies without Jason in it too, of course. Uh, you know, Spoiler. Right. You know, you stop the man on the street, and, you know, for a very, very long time, you know, uh, you would say, you know, I, you know, their first thought when they think about when you say horror movie is, you know, some dude in a hockey mask chopping up girls with a machete. You know yes, what I mean? Yes. And it's like, I mean, that's where it starts for the mainstream audience. I think that, you know, we're a little bit farther down the road. I don't think that that's the situation anymore, but I mean, for a very, very long time, that was the case. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And for a generation of people, I mean, I know that people around our age, uh, you know, between that, let's say, 25 to 50 audience, we all have memories of them. And for me, as a kid, it was definitely something I was passionate about because it, 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 it got into that part of my geek brain where just the character of Jason Voorhees was almost like a comic book character or something yeah. at a time where there really weren't good comic book characters in movies, so it kind of like scratched the very or very seldom it scratched that itch of seeing this larger than life, like very you know mythic seeming character that is in movie after movie, kind of like James Bond or something right. in a way. Yeah, you know, and he evolves in these subtle ways throughout the the films and becomes sure. you know increasingly powerful ultimately. Yeah, I, 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 it's it's funny that you draw the James Bond comparison because I mean we we have a character who keeps the same. Name, uh, same general background, but it's played in different movies by different actors. Each 
iteration brings something new or different at the very least to uh, to what it is. I mean, I just thought that it would be a fun thing to do because even when these movies are are bad, they're so bad they're good, and and there's really a lot of great uh, stuff primally and in terms of suspense sequences in these movies that. It's just fun to look at how they how they did it and how they approached it and how um, what we can glean from that. Yeah, I, I will say, I mean, uh, for me personally, uh, it wasn't even the first Friday the Thirteenth. Uh, you know, the first two, I was still too young. My parents just wouldn't rent them for me, and I, I was too young to have my own card. Right. You know, it was back when horror movies were like on par with like porn in the sense that it was like behind the curtain. Like, if you saw this, it would blow your fucking mind, man. Like, yeah. this is way too much for a little kid. You know I mean? This roller coaster... You, you must be this high to get on this roller coaster. Yeah. You know, and it's like the, the, the things that these movies promised, you know, made them that much greater in your young mind. You know what I mean? So, weirdly enough, like, uh, I probably saw one and two at, like, a friend's house, but I, I don't... It's in the messy memories, I don't recall. Right. The one that really got me was three... Ah, and I mean, when we come around to three, we'll, 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 you know, I, I and I'll, I'll nerd out about that. But I'm mean, super long story short. There was one summer, uh, when three played on I think Showtime, nonstop, and it became almost like this weird daily ritual. It was always like in the middle of the morning, get up, uh, eat breakfast, and then see check the Showtimes to see <laughs> what was on Friday the Thirteenth Part Three was going to play. So it's like. And that's the one I've seen dozens of times. And it landed on my brain at, like, that very, you know, specific era in your life when, you know, the hardwiring is still being written. Absolutely. And it's a time when you don't really have access to a lot of women in your life. You're still, like, like figuring that out. Yeah, I was like, girls ten, are, yeah, I was like right. 10 or something like that. So yeah, it's, like, yeah. Like, it, it's an introduction to sexuality in a lot of ways. Right, you know, yeah. These films are loaded with... You know, kids trying to get laid, and you can certainly relate to that as you get into your teens and beyond. Even you know, it's like there's always this sort of um, vicarious pleasure in watching you know when they do hook up and sympathy when they don't, and and so these films kind of in, in, encapsulate the teenage experience in a lot of ways. Yeah, absolutely. And it's like, and you know, when when you're ten, eleven, twelve, it's like you're you're looking at you know, film and TV to kind of prepare you for what, you know, right. high school, you know, what it's going to be like to be a teenager. I mean, as much of a bad rap as these movies get on, like, uh, kind of the female empowerment side, I guess we could say that, in most cases, I mean, these, the, you know, these characters are, like, really fun, smart, capable girls who are just, mm -hmm. like, you know, I mean, they're, they're, you know, they're, you know, 18 or so, they're running around, and they're, they're having the time of their lives until this goof shows up, and then they actively fight them. You know what I mean? Right. And like, like for my young brain, I'm just like, wow, it would be really awesome to have a girlfriend because it would be cool to have like some hot chick in a bikini who's also like kind of funny and she likes to jump in the pool and, you know, <laughs> and, and, and shoot bows and arrows and run around the woods. It's like, yeah, that would be so cool, man. You know, so. Well, there are also a lot of feminine empowerment in this thing, too, because, you know, these are not damsels in distress a lot of the time. Like, you know, the, the heroines of these films are, you know, 
early versions of now what we see a lot, which is the kick-ass heroine who, you know, beats the crap out of the bad guy and survives, you yeah. know? I mean, like, that's really a, a healthy message in, in obvious ways, so. I, I, I think there are ten movies in which we watch teenage girls bash things over the heads of either a galoot or uh, someone who's posing as the galoot. Exactly. So it's like, yeah, uh, there's, there's a lot of running around and screaming, but when it comes down to it, you know... They're, they're not afraid to go toe-toe, man. You yeah, know? there's a lot of ass-kicking. Yeah! Done so by the ladies. Over the years, I have developed like this weird hindbrain thought that the first one was okay, but kind of dull. You know what I mean? And uh, I, I actually wasn't in like a... You know, I figured that watching the first one for this episode of the podcast would be a little bit doing my homework, eating my vegetables. You know what I mean? But uh, when we sat down to watch it, man, I... Thoroughly enjoyed it. I, I I found it to be a way more interesting movie that that I even remembered. It doesn't have Jason, so well, very briefly at any rate. But it it works in so many ways that later films just choose to operate differently in. That it's kind of refreshing to see sort of the fresh-eyed, innocent approach to this series before they get a little self-referential and things like that. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. I, and I also think that it's it's shot surprisingly well, and it's kind of interesting that the first name that shows up on the screen uh, in the opening title sequence is the director of photography, which you don't see very often. Yeah, well, I, I, I mean, it's very much, uh, you know, Sean Cunningham immediately lays claim to this. It's like, that, those are those are the first words you see before Friday the 13th, you know what I mean? But, right. You know, what I also like is uh, when... Uh, Friday the Thirteenth swoops into your view in almost this very three dish kind of way, and then like shatters a window. <laughs> yes, you know what I mean? And yes. It's like yeah, it, it's immediate. Like, like there's no question what this movie is going to deliver. You know what I mean? Right. It's you know there's some movies that you can tell the filmmakers are like, this is going to be playing in front of a drive-in full of screaming kids. You know, yes. te- it's going to be teenagers making out. And we're going to fucking shock their socks off. You know what I mean? So it's yeah, like, this you know, is going to be a thrill ride. You yeah, know, so get a ticket. If, if you're like some dude, you know, wearing a beret and smoking a clove cigarette, you know, then you could say, oh, well, it's not a very subtle thing, is it? You know, it's just like, well, <laughs> you know, not, neither is a fucking hot dog, you know what I mean, or a hamburger. It's like, I mean, it's, it's a straight fastball down the middle. This is what we're delivering. 90 minutes of sex and violence. Strap in. This is what you're going to get. All right, well, strap in, folks. We're going to get into all of this, but first, let's get our guest for the evening, uh, someone I think we'll talk to a lot, if not every week. Our old friend, Vic Wheat, also a famed Steeler fan. Uh, Some of you may remember him, and he is joining us now from Chatsworth, California. How are you tonight there, Vic? Doing very well, John. Good to talk with you and Mike. So glad you could join us. Mm -hmm. Hi, Vic. Mike, how are you, sir? I've, I'm fantastic. And even better now that you've uh, formed this triumvirate. <laughs> we're, we're like the Voltron of Friday the 13th. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, wouldn't miss, I wouldn't miss this for the world, guys. So, <laughs> Well, great. Let's kick it off with uh, basically the question that, you know, would start any conversation about these crazy movies. Uh, why do you care? Like, what's their role in your life or your childhood? And how... Uh, you know, how did they come to find a place in your heart? Well, I mean, look, if if you were a horror fan in the 80s and 90s, uh, I mean, Friday the 13th is, I really think, the, the dominant uh, franchise. I mean, uh, certainly, you know, the, the first, I would almost say, eight movies 
um, are, there's maybe not one of them that achieves sort of the heights of, of, of terror that you get from maybe the first Halloween or the, the first uh, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street, but there's a, there's a consistency to them um, that, is, that is kind of remarkable. Uh, that you just you always wanted to see when the next one came out, um, and uh, I don't know. I think too, you know, the 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 nostalgia for them, uh, in particular, John. I, I know you're you're aware of this. I have, we have some uh, some friends who are who are also sort of horror super fans, shall we say? And uh, every year we get together uh, for Halloween for for almost the last ten years now um, to watch horror movies for an entire weekend and that started off by starting with franchises and, and literally the first uh franchise we did was friday the 13th which is an enormous nice. number of movies to, to tackle in an entire weekend uh <laughs> and when i came into my friend's place and they had everything decorated with camp crystal lake um you know and and hockey masks and and uh, uh machetes um and i was stunned even at that point in my in my late 20s mid 20s um how effective that imagery was um it was really it really had this kind of powerful effect on me and then to sit there and watch all of those movies um in a row uh, never mind john I'm, I'm sure you remember that you and i went to see the the first film in the uh the 20th anniversary screening i believe um yeah Yes, that's right. Well, at least now we know there are six or eight people that might want to listen to this podcast. So that's fantastic. <laughs> you know, I, 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 I just to kind of sidebar really quickly I, I, regarding the imagery. I will say that one time I was walking down, I think, Sunset, and I saw a uh, a billboard that had nothing but a giant hockey mask on it. And my immediate thought was, oh, holy cow they made another Friday the 13th movie and it wasn't until closer inspection that I realized, no, it's actually an advertisement for the LA Kings. And you see a, high, a giant hockey mask floating over sunset and your immediate thought isn't, okay, sports fans, time for some hockey. <laughs> and the iconography of the films are definitely, they've etched in a lot of people's brains, not just ours. But uh, Vic, what was the first Friday the 13th movie that you saw uh, growing up or whenever you actually saw it? I mean, my first memory is, is of the, the final chapter. I remember very distinctly Corey Feldman shaving his, young Corey Feldman shaving his head. Yes, yes. Uh, and, luring, <laughs> and luring Jason in. And that was just, the, the image of him with his head shaved was terrifying. And I actually remember, this is funny because I'm, I'm, I can't tell you how young I was, but I know that it scared me enough that I, I lay in bed thinking about it. And I told my mother one, night, one, one day, like the next morning when I finally sort of got myself to sleep, and uh, my parents were all psychologists. My mother was terribly impressed by this. I said to her, you know, if Jason ever tried to kill me, I would just tell him that no matter how many people he kills, it's not going to bring his mother back. <laughs> and, and then the, the the giant mongoloid who lives in the woods would kind of tilt his head and a little tear would run down the <laughs> single eye he would just nod in under solemn understanding and trudge away with although, his shoulders bowed although in two psychology does work on him so i mean perhaps you know little vic wouldn't be uh completely so hot class you know. Well, I mean, if he could learn to do a woman's voice, he'd really be ahead of the game. 
<laughs> but let's not get to that. That's more of a part two conversation. Why yeah, don't we talk about, about the first one? That's what we're here to discuss tonight. So, Vic, what are your overall impressions or your assessment of where the first one fits in? It's such a strange way to begin this, to begin any franchise, because it, again, we've talked about the iconography and the, the you know, the hockey mask and, and, you know, so much of the imagery and stuff, and none of that is there. Right. Uh, there is no, you know, I mean, Jason Voorhees doesn't exist until the, in, until, uh, spoiler alert, the final moments <laughs> of the film. It, but at the same time, it does sort of lay out that template um, in a lot of ways, sort of expanding on, I think, the, you know, the template that, that Halloween laid out. But, uh, I mean, this one, I think, is the one that's followed even more explicitly. I mean, part of what's interesting about Halloween and where, where Friday the 13th, I think, differentiates itself is that Halloween takes place in a suburban neighborhood. Uh, Friday the 13th really, you know, even Nightmare on Elm Street, which I think was after this. Um, but those are very suburban films. This transplants that idea of, you know, that would become sort of the, the, the slasher film to an isolated location, which is this, this summer camp. But it's also a place that's really relatable uh, because most of us, certainly I spent many summers at summer camp, um, and it is isolated and it is scary. Um, the name Camp Crystal Lake is great. And to have to have some of that introduced. So camps provide a, a really interesting variety of, of uh, uh, weapons. Uh, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of arrows in this, which you don't see in a lot of movies. It's an interesting and very different launch pad. I think in many ways it, it, it it's maybe one of the more flawed films. Uh, I'm taken out of it every time the 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 killer is spoken to and and the camera is very consciously you know a POV or looking at somebody's feet and it's like oh hey what are you doing here. Um, th that always sort of takes me out of it in a way that, you know, when, when, you know, in the later films, when Jason Voorhees walks in, nobody addresses him with such familiarity. Um, hmm. so you didn't yeah. like that, huh? Cause I thought that was somewhat interesting in the sense that it's a clue as to the identity of who the killer is, right? Because, you know, she is this innocuous looking person. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, in this movie, it kind of makes sense that people would just be like, Oh, what are you doing out here? Or just address her like a normal person or get in her Jeep or something, you know, because yeah. she she seems harmless. And I thought that was kind of, you know, refreshing because of all the killer POVs that we've gotten since this movie and since Halloween and wherever it began. Um, it's it's always the brooding, hulking, disfigured guy who may or may not be wearing a mask in the shadows. That's true. I think it just it sort of sets it up as as almost a whodunit yes. um, without, you know, without ever really giving you the clues to figure out who it is. That, That's that, true. Betsy Palmer is, is, is terrifying when she finally gets to, uh, you know, delve into her character and, 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 you know, I mean, the scenes when she's chasing Alice around and stuff, she's yeah. actually really unsettling. And I mean, in the whole thing, I mean, you could almost make the case, the whole thing leads up to that. I mean, that final moment is, is, just one of the most terrifying scenes ever filmed. Um, it's still, it's still even watching it uh, again, just, just recently before this podcast, um, I still jumped. Mm -hmm. um, it's timed in a really unusual way, you know? Yeah. 
Yeah, it goes on for so long before the actual jump that you know, even if you were expecting the jump, you've 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 actually kind of given up on it. But well, point. and when you see, I mean, if you if you juxtapose it with the uh, the the uh, Platinum Dunes reboot that they did a few years ago, where you all were you sort of knew that there was going to be some sort of jump scare at the end or whatever. Uh, I mean, you realize that with all the money and, and, and special effects and, and all the benefits of having a big studio and everything else, they couldn't, not only could they not top it, they couldn't come close. Um, it really is. I mean, and, and there's something too, I mean, that's one of the things that John, that I, that I find makes it stand out to me is that here in these final moments, you have this inexplicable sort of suggestion, I suppose of the supernatural, like yes. that, that whole scene is offered with no explanation. Yes. Um, and that's, I think that's part of what makes it so terrifying. That is something in this film, I think, that you see that, that jumps out at me and, and uh, really makes it stand out from other slasher films. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, on top of that, too, it's like, I mean, I mean the less horror is explained, the more effective it is. I, and it's supposed to be weird. It's supposed to be uncanny. And the fact that it goes completely unexplained it and it's really like they, they vaguely touch on it at the top of two you know uh but it's never like truly explained exactly what happened there you know uh and you know what's weird though is that moment at the end of the film establishes the idea of an undead zombie jason that we actually don't firmly come back to until part Yes. I filmed after goodbye or four rather before we actually loop all the way back around to that. Yeah. Which is interesting. But well, why it, is he still like a boy at the end if he's not dead? Right. Because this is supposed to be present day and no earlier than 1980. So right. if he was eight years old in 1958, he would be another 22 years older now. So he would be around 30 when this movie uh, takes place. And he's clearly still a boy. She refers to him as a boy. The police are like, well, we, we didn't see any boy. you know. So like this movie really is suggesting that he hasn't just been kicking around the lake and he and mom haven't crossed paths yet like this movie suggests that he's now come back from the the grave and dredged out of this lake to take revenge on the killer of his mother yeah. no i i uh, that's i mean that's a marvelous amount of sort of narrative to suggest with you know in just the closing minutes of it because i agree and that i think that is exactly what it suggests is that somehow that the death of his mother has resurrected him um, and I think that went a long way to the movie being such a big hit. Yeah. That oh, ended. oh yeah, absolutely. I, I think that there, I mean, if this movie does one brilliant, absolutely brilliant thing, it's to realize that the best thing that you can do as a horror movie is to scare the shit out of the audience right before you send them out of the theater. Yeah. Yeah. And, and cause then the theater at these everyone's, you know, going nuts and the people waiting in line to go in there and it's like, Holy shit. Yeah. It's like, it's like watching people get off a roller coaster. You know, yeah, totally. And you immediately have people go, "Oh my God, that's the scariest thing!" Uh, you know, <laughs> I, I mean, you don't coast a horror movie, you know, to the ground like it's an airplane on a runway. I mean, you gotta crash that fucking thing right before the ending credits. You know. <laughs> Doubling back, Vic, to something you said before that it's interesting because uh, Mike and I don't have any summer camp experience. So, how do those years of going to summer camps in your childhood? 
inform your relationship with this film, let's say, like looking back at this film, did you, were you reminded of anything from your life or does, does that make it scarier somehow? What's interesting about this film and see, I'd have to, I'd have to do a little more homework to come up with this, but it's a while before they actually introduce campers, right? I mean, I six is the, the first memory I have of there being campers in a camp. Yeah, yeah. Uh, not two. I, I think it's a mix. Yeah. I, I, I mean, two. There's there's a distinct mix between uh, counselors and campers, but there aren't like a whole lot of them. Yeah, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, it's oh. like, like the burning has way more campers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. camp has a lot of campers. Um, I mean, it it is. I think. And it's something that I've kept. I mean, as a just a, a recreational camper as an adult. I mean, that feeling of being alone in the woods, um, there's just something very primal about that. I mean, when I was, you know, when I was camping, I remember my parents dropping me off to summer camp for the first time and the, the camp had to relocate. It was sort of a temporary setup that they had. And so my, my quote unquote cabin was a giant tarp stretched over four pieces of, of you know, four uh, uh, posts with a bunch of, you know, with, with, uh, in the grass and there were just bunk beds, you know, sitting in the grass underneath it. And I had this feeling of like, you guys aren't really going to leave me here. Are you? Oh. <laughs> and so you spent a night in there. I spent two weeks there. <laughs> Holy shit, man. <laughs> like Suspiria in the wilderness. <laughs> I mean, you know, waking up to, I mean, literally like you had a, we had, a, I had a trunk with my, my clothes and everything in it. And I woke up to a, a wolf spider the size of a, a dinner plate on top of it once, and was like, "Holy cow! Help! Somebody!" Oh, no! Yeah! Oh no! Oh. Wow, so, that beats Jason bit, in my uh, book. Yeah, don't don't uh, don't worry, little dick. Bears are terrified of tarps. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. Fair. Um, but yeah, so it is. I mean, like I said, that what what I guess what I associate with that experience that I think that I think helps me connect with all of these movies really is that sense of isolation mm-hmm. um, that you are in a place where there, you know, there's one telephone and it's in the main cabin, uh, you know, which you are not close to. It's one of the things I was struck by watching the, watching the film is, is just from a scripting standpoint, they managed to kill most of the people before anybody notices that anybody's gone. She's very strategic in what she does because, you know, obviously unlike, you know, the killer that we get for most of these films, this is a deranged, but still alive and, you know, functional human being. So mm-hmm. only it's only in this movie where we get like, you know, the killer's driving a Jeep and <laughs> yeah. she's cutting the phone lines and, you know, uh, like doing some diabolical mind gamey stuff, like leaving the ax placed just so in the bed with blood on it. Yeah. It, it, it is interesting that, uh, uh, the truck driver, the one girl out there, um, mentions that not only were a couple of campers killed in 1958, but also that there were fires and there was a uh, bad, you know, trouble with the water supply. So, right. I mean, it's implied that, like, like, I mean, you know, besides murdering those two kids in the opening sequence, you know, that she's, like, setting shit on fire. You know, <laughs> which she doesn't do in this movie because, you know, budget allowing, blah, blah, blah. And, and also because it's raining. But still, it's like, you know, she, she's not like a mindless zombie who's just hacking up people. So, Vic, what did you think of the, the characters in this film? <laughs> There's almost too many of them. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you really, you really have to sort of pay attention to be like, wait, okay, so Alice is flirting with the Steve, and and you know what I mean, and like, yeah. and like trying to sort of establish the relationships and stuff. I mean, it's almost, it's interesting that you that that I connect instantly with Kevin Bacon because it's Kevin Bacon, um, <laughs> right. and I found myself watching his death scene with a certain amount of trepidation that I didn't share with the other characters. <laughs> um, I mean, you know, look, it 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 fits with. Um, a lot of the, and, and I mean, perhaps establishes, or, you know, certainly, certainly helps to establish a lot of the, just the archetypes that these movies have. Um, I mean, I was struck by when they're playing strip monopoly, that Alice is the only one that takes off all her clothes on, you know? And it's like, oh, well, she's also the one who survives. Like, well, she's just unbuttoning her blouse when the door blows open. Oh, goodness. You're right. Yeah, Yeah, that's absolutely correct. Well, yeah, I mean, obviously one of the archetypes of these films in general is that the virginal girl is the final girl, and much has been written and said about that. But let's look at Alice in this case. Um, what, uh, Vic, did you think that she was more or less uh, convincing as a, as a teenager than the average heroine in one of these Friday the 13th films? I mean... I actually, I thought a lot of the performances were sort of surprisingly good. I mean, one of the things yeah. that I find that I found interesting is they do sort of an interesting job of, of disguising your heroine for a long time. Yeah. Um, I mean, because, uh, you know, Annie is the first person that you see and you get so much of the, the backstory uh, from her as she's making her way to the camp. She never even gets there. Yeah, I love that. I was completely convinced that she was going to be the main character in this film yeah. uh, because she's spunky and, you know, she's kind of irreverent and she's the first one we meet. So we're like, OK, you know, this is obviously going to be the protagonist. Honestly, I mean, all the all the actors, I think, are are convincing in terms of being a teenager. And Alice is, is I actually I was struck by her haircut a little bit. <laughs> right. The short sort of, sort of tomboyish uh, uh, haircut a little bit. Um uh, that makes her stand out. It's, I don't know. It I mean, it, it's a, it's a fine performance. There's nothing that takes me out. Certainly not as much as, as uh, uh, TJ souls and Halloween or, or, you know, cause it, <laughs> there are less convincing, uh, less convincing performances in, in plenty of other slasher movies. I want to I point out that Betsy Palmer was nominated for a Razzie award for this performance. So. Oh, shut up. Really? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I disagree with that. I'm I'm more with you, Vic. I mean, I I think that she's loopy in a fairly interesting, psychologically textured way. I mean, I could tell from watching one DVD extra on this that she styles herself as a serious actress, and she took this part very seriously. And she was absolutely inhabiting that character from the point of view of a grieving mother who, you know, feels like she's absolutely justified in what she's doing. And in some way she's even still protecting her, her son, or at least other kids like him. The smile she wears when Alice comes running out and she gets out of her Jeep and is like, yeah. you know, Oh my God, you're going to leave me out. And he's dead and she's dead and blah, blah, blah. And she's like, girl, like, I can't help you. If you don't, son, you don't calm down. Yeah. Um, it is like the sweetest kind of grandmotherly smile. Yeah. Um, Good point. Uh, it's very yeah. Like I said, I mean that's I it was it, I found it unsettling almost from the word go, uh, in large part because I knew you know I mean knowing sort of what was what was coming. Um, but yeah, she's I, I I do think she's very good. 
Uh, we can't talk about one of these movies without covering the kills a little bit. Did any of them stand out to you as particularly good, bad, ingenious, laughable? I mean, the arrow through Kevin Bacon's throat, and again, I don't know how much that has to do with it being Kevin Bacon. Um, I would actually, I, I was thinking about this because I'd be curious to hear your guys' thoughts on this. I mean, do you think, in my head, I I sort of identify the Friday the 13th movie as being more violent, more sexy, you know, than, than sort of the other, the other, uh, uh, Mm -hmm. slasher film franchises. I'm not sure how correct that is. There's not a lot of sort of out and out nudity in this. Um, well, I don't know that girl in, uh, her hot little white panties there. That was, that was something, man. That's true. That's true. Um, they were both transparent and skimpy, which you cannot beat. Yeah. Well, uh, I was saying, I mean, in terms of gore, uh, it definitely laps the first Halloween. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I, 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 it's, I, with, with only one exception, I mean, we see everybody killed on screen, you know. And oh, I should action. mention. I'm sorry, Mike. Uh, we're watching the unrated uh, cut. Oh, even better. Right yeah. on. Okay. Yeah, so I don't know what the theatrical cut, how much it varies, but uh, and I don't know, Vic, you might have been watching the theatrical cut if you watch it on Netflix. I suspect I was, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, so I like I said, the the one that stands out to me is that there's something about how slowly that arrow comes up through Kevin Bacon's throat, um, and the you know a lot of the other ones. I mean, the the axe to the head and and the even even uh, Annie's throat getting slit. Um, which is the effects of, uh, are actually, I, I remember being surprised at how good they were, even for, you know, for 1980. Uh, Savini. But, uh, yeah, exactly. But, um, yeah, I, there's, there is something about the, the, again, the slowness. I think when it comes through, it sort of turns a little bit and the blood comes out. And, of course, he can't even really scream because... Uh, uh, it's in his throat. Because it's through his throat. It's... It, you know, it, it's very graphic, and it, you know, it, it, it. That's probably to me. That's probably the most impressive. Although Betsy Palmer's decapitation, nothing to shake a stick at. Yeah. I think the throat flitting is probably the effect that that Savini had really perfected in this movie. Like, like you know, uh, the knife goes across, and we get two of them. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, the knife goes across, and and the flesh waits for a second before parting, and then blood coming out. And it's like, I mean, that's gruesome. Um, you know, I mean, John, I think you pointed out, well, uh, you know, the, the arrow through, uh, you know, kind of making the neck, like the idea of it is far more gruesome, but it, it also is the one that looks most distinctly like a, an effect. Uh, yeah, the second but, shot of it, 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 I only caught it the second time I watched it, but you can very clearly tell that the dummy's skin tone does not match Kevin Bacon's face. Like it's a darker tan. So if yeah. you linger, if you're not really caught in the moment, it's really easy to spot the the second shot of that of that little reveal. Yeah, I uh, you know that kill. I, I actually found the uh, the hand slapping over his forehead to hold him in place, like way more creepy and sinister than the actual arrow. Yeah, in a way. Yeah, I mean, I, I just the hand like clapping over your face out of nowhere is really fucking creepy. I, especially when you remember that, when, when, you, when you realize that, I mean, she was lying under there the whole time they were screwing that check, you know? So it's, it's <laughs> I love that. She's way. under the bed the whole time. <laughs> yeah, and she's got, 
she's just lying, you know, this middle-aged woman is just lying there with an arrow in her, in her hand, waiting for the perfect moment, you know, for Kevin to stop serving the bacon, you know, and he's, <laughs> oh, he's left alone. And then with a surprising level of upper body strength, she's able to push that arrow through the mattress and then through his neck, you know, while holding it in place. So it's like, you know, I, I think it's like the strength of thing is what I give it, you know? So, and it's I, cool. But I, I, you know, the ax to the head, um, I don't think that beat actually like a hundred percent cuts together really well. You know, I, I, I and it's, it's a little off the way, the way it kind of plays, you know I mean? She's standing there, and just, just kind of screams, and then we cut away, and she's just kind of got an axe in her face now. You know what I mean? Uh, it, it's a little like, hmm, what? You know? Well, they, they probably uh, tried it with a dummy where you actually see the axe impacting the dummy, but the dummy never looked uh, convincing enough to be used. Yeah, it, it, it feels a lot like that we're really trying to make that beat work in the editing room, and it wasn't 100% totally coming together you know so it's like but you know in, in, in the you know 1980 is beautiful screaming kids you know no one's gonna care you know um and of course i mean the girl who dies on the uh you know the archery range you know i, I i'm never a huge fan of like characters like kind of dying off screen and we just scream and la la it's like eh, what what Especially on the on the archery range. I mean, having set up with that earlier shot when the, when the Ned shoots, I think it's Ned that shoots the arrow at her. Um, exactly. Vic, the movie gives us the gun on the mantelpiece. It establishes the threat of the archery range. Yeah. And then and then I, I yeah and then doesn't pay it off. It's like when we have the opportunity to shoot a chick with an arrow. On the archery range, we come away and we get a different screen. It's like, oh, come on, what? Yeah, I I agree with. You. Actually, to to jump back just a bit because you were like you mentioned about uh, Betsy Palmer clearly being under the bed while Kevin Bacon is having sex. You know, Ned is on the top bunk with his throat slit in the same scene. It's really a mm-hmm. very crowded cabin. <laughs> oh yeah, yes. Yes. Yeah. I, 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 you know, I, I, you know, the, the wonderful thing about this movie is there is a purity in terms of what it's offering the audience, and that is sex, and that is violence. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, and that one, we have a dead body in the top bunk, two screwing teenagers in, in the bottom bunk, and a crazy woman with an arrow waiting to kill somebody lying under the bottom bunk. So it, it, it's like a, a club sandwich of <laughs> sex and violence. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> that's what I mean about my again, certainly at least my associations with the Friday the Thirteenth movies. That's what I that's what I associate them with. Is that? I mean, it seems a little strange to say, but yes, the purity of sex and violence. That there's no, they're they're not lingering on the you know the subtext, the you know the, the psychosexual subtext of of right. Myers or the you know the the Freudian Jungian dream imagery of. Uh, um, uh, Freddy Krueger, like, look, this, right. this is, if, if, you know, if this is your thing, if this is what, you know, you look for in a horror film, we're going to give it to you in spades. Um, uh, yeah, you, you bought a ticket to a movie called Friday the 13th. You yeah. knew what, what was going to be going in. You know, we, we know that's not going to be Gone with the Wind too. Yeah. <laughs> you, you bring up the title, yeah. and that's one other thing I wanted to throw out for discussion here before we wrap it up. Um, so the movie is called Friday the 13th, and we learn in this film that Friday the 13th is Jason's birthday, 
mm. and the day that he died. So this event in the time that uh, in the present, this takes place on that anniversary and it's a full moon and it's raining. And then you get yeah. this movie. See, I, I, you know, I, I just to throw this out there, I, I we're, uh, you know, just to, I, I think this movie is 99% grounded, but it has a hint of the supernatural. I think that, you know, everything, John, that you just brought up, you know, kind of lends itself to the idea that this is a campfire tale. Yeah. But if we're going to look at the actual world in which this movie takes place, I think that on some level, there's a summoning occurring, you know, with this confluence of, of, of stuff going on. Right. His birthday, his death day, the full moon, like, you know, I, and for all we know, his mom was like, is, you know, what, what's she been doing? I mean, she's probably like working as like a cafeteria woman somewhere. Lunch lady. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, just out of nowhere, she just gets a weird look in her eyes. She just drops her ladle, walks out the door. You know what I mean? Well, like, I wonder if the spirit of Jason Voorhees hasn't possessed her because he started, she starts speaking in his voice. You know what I mean? And then we get him popping out of the lake. You know, I, I think that, you know, it's on some subtle level, this movie has a little bit more to do with The Ring and the Grudge than Halloween. Right. You know what I mean? Vic, what's yeah. your reaction to that? Well, the, the other thing I think that, that lends itself to that uh, that interpretation, because, again, I, I think that I, I absolutely agree with that. Um, and like I said, I think it is that the subtlety with which there is this hint of supernatural um, you know, which again obviously pays off in that sort of that sort of final moment. Um, but yeah. there's that whole scene when Marcy talks about her dream about the, you know, her fear of thunderstorms because of this dream yes. when the rain turns to blood. Um, I mean, yeah. you know, I mean, not to I get love that scene. It's 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 really effective, and not to get too far off the rails, but it reminds me it reminds me of sort of the Ides of March before Julius Caesar is assassinated. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I I forget this all fatalistic things. precognitive dream. Yeah, yeah. What well, one has to wonder if this girl doesn't have a little boy who lives in her stomach. Right. You know what I mean? She's got the shine. <laughs> yeah. No. I mean, seriously, it's like I I mean, uh, you know, the kid in The Shining sees an elevator full of blood. She's yeah, seeing um, blood, you know, raining blood, you know. So I, mean, I, I, you know, Slayer's seminal album went coming out for another six years. So we know it's not that, you know. What I mean, <laughs> she, just, so, she just didn't have enough of it to see that that action had coming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I, I, and she she got a glimpse, <laughs> glimpse of it, just a touch of the shine. Uh, yeah, she yeah, she wouldn't um, even be seeing the old lady in the bathtub until it was too late. No, no. But yeah, um, yeah, you know, I, I, you know, I, I think Kevin should ask her if she wants some ice cream back. You know? <laughs> <laughs> One thing that I just have to throw out on the subject of Kevin, uh, Vic, in your mind, I mean, and this is something we'll determine conclusively in the course of these podcasts, is Kevin Bacon the most famous person to ever appear in a Friday the Thirteenth movie? Oh man. Um... I don't know. wasn't Wasn't Chad Michael Murray in the the reboot? Yeah. Sorry, that was tough. Does that count? <laughs> <laughs> Is that more famous than Kevin Bacon? I don't know, man. <laughs> um, I probably. I mean, who's who's running second in that? Doesn't Tony Goldwyn get killed in the first thirty seconds of Part Six? 
Yeah, I think he's Corey, in Corey that. Feldman. That's, that's well, Corey, Chris, Corey uh, Crispin Glover. Yeah, Crispin Glover. Crispin Glover is in four. Yeah, we're struggling no. here. Well, we'll find out. Like, I I think that if there is someone, it's like some cameo that we've totally forgotten, kind of like Jennifer Aniston in Leprechaun or something like that. You know, Listen, nobody right. has forgotten Jennifer Aniston in Leprechaun. That's going to be the first line in her uh, in her obituary. <laughs> That's going to be our tombstone, man. Right, Jennifer Aniston, star of Leprechaun and some TV show that produced numbers. So, final thoughts, Vic. Like, uh, is there anything else that struck you about this film that you wanted to talk about uh, tonight? Well, like I said, I what really what what I was pleasantly surprised by is just what an unusual kickoff it is for a franchise. I mean, it's it's there's something unlikely about this this movie becoming what we think of when we think of Friday the 13th. Um, again, the, 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 that kind of vaguely hinted at supernatural undertone, I think is goes a long way towards making it work. Um, and, uh, I agree. and also, I mean, I, even for what it's worth, I mean, even if it was only for one movie, the idea of a, of the, the, the female serial killer as an antagonist, you know, I mean, that's, uh, you always have, well, I guess, uh, sleepaway camp doesn't actually count for that, but um, uh, you know, I mean, that was that's that's even that strikes me as unusual. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, I want to throw one more thing at you. I, I was struck that some of the rules had been codified at this point. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, we have Halloween was clearly more than an inspiration here. They've admitted the screenwriter has to being asked to rip it off. So he studied that film. He's like, all right, what's the formula? And so this is what we got. But at the same time, I think there's something really, there's a purity about this movie and and a naturalism to it, which comes from the fact that they don't know that it's going to be a hit. They don't know that there's going to be a wink and a nudge when somebody does something stupid. And like, they don't know how unlikable the characters should be so that we can enjoy them getting killed. They don't know how audiences really react to these films, which I believe really starts to inform them certainly by the third one where it's almost already self parody on some level. And what I really like about this movie. Yeah. This movie is just playing it straight, you know? And, and and so it's kind of scary for that. Yeah. yeah, you know, there there is an interesting, you know, kind of, Vic, I, I think you, you, and some of you said, it touched off the thought that there is a whole cloth feel to this film. I, I yeah, it, it's drawing from the DNA of an of an earlier movie, but at the same time, it, I mean, this feels like really born out of the ether. You know, I mean, it it, it feels complete in a really pure and 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 uh, almost elemental way you know there's a yeah. lot of mythology for one movie yeah i i think that's kind of the thing too is i i mean what this movie is trying to be is the 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 execution on screen of a scary campfire tale so you have like all of these elements that you know the writer can draw on, you know the the creep in the woods and a rainstorm and that 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 one thing that the writer did say uh, was that when he was looking at the Halloween film for his marching orders was that there needed to be a 
crime in the past. Like you, you get that very clearly at the beginning of Halloween, of course, with, you know, young Michael killing his family. So this writer, Victor Miller knew that he needed to, you know, have the kernel of the origin story here be something terrible that happened long ago. Yeah. And again, kind of looping around to the idea of, of, you know, kind of, you know, if there's a connection to be made with between this and like J horror, you know, in both Ring and the Grudge, we have a ghost that's haunting people because something awful happened a long time ago. And right. the reverberations of that occur in the present day. You know what I mean? So totally. it's the idea that, like, an evil act becomes its own entity that kind of spins out from its own center. If you're a camp counselor, you know, watch those kids, man. <laughs> that's or the job. evil cyclone will come and spin out a ghoul to take you away to your doom. Yeah, exactly. The universe, you know, you, you rip a hole in the universe. All right, Vic. Well, this has been great, man. Thanks for jumping on with us. You got it, and I really enjoyed it. All right, well, we started talking about the movie with Vic there, Mike, but let's get deeper into it and wrap this up with uh, our own discussion of this particular film. Yeah. What are your impressions overall about Friday the 13th Part 1? Why did it work for you? You know, I, I, I think it's way more uh, of a movie that's trying to be a Hitchcockian thriller, like in the back of its head. I mean, it's clearly like, hey, let's make something like Halloween, but, um, you know, there's, there's a, a whole cloth element to it. I, I think it's, it's, it's saying, let's do a ripoff of Halloween, where it's going to be some, someone running around and murdering teenagers. Yeah, and, uh, uh, but, you know, we get the surprise ending, you know, um, and also like a far more clever antagonist. And she's setting fires in the, in the backstory. I mean, she's futzing with the lights and the generator and the phone lines and da 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 You know, it's like, uh, yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's got the surprise reveal uh, you know, it's got uh, a bait and switch in there, like the you know the girl that we first see, we think is going to be our protagonist, and she's actually one of our first kills. Yeah, you know I mean, it's, it's actively you know it's you know the joys of this movie aren't just let's see someone walk around and hack up kids. You know, I mean, it's, yes. yeah, it yeah. is, and uh, yeah, I mean that's uh, also kind of trying to as a gestalt you know, give one scary movie that, like, kind of combines all the campfire tales. It's a campfire tale of a movie. You know what I mean? Like, like I'm reminded of the, of the opening of uh, The Fog, you know, where it's like, you know, that's very clearly, we've got John Houseman yeah, and his little scene. That's clearly Carpenter saying, this is a campfire tale of a movie, you know? And, you know, we just don't have it that obvious, but I, that's what this is. Absolutely. You know? Yeah, I mean, it's a kind of a camp tradition right i mean one again you and i don't have a lot of experience with it but just people get together and tell scary stories about you know bad things that happened 20 years ago right around here yeah and in this case it's true within the you know fabric of story i would say it derives its power due to the fact that i mean we can easily say that's probably the 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 original er horror movie is you know, tribal nomadic cave people entertaining each other around a campfire with, with scary shit. You know what I mean? And that's where you get legends of demons and ghosts and la la la. You know, and, uh, yeah, I mean, there is, like, you know, if we didn't like it, we, we, we wouldn't create it. You know? Right. So it's like, yeah, I, I mean, it's... I, I mean, we're, we're talking about, like, an entertainment... A, a filmic representation of something that, like, cave people did. You know Absolutely. what I mean? So it's like, it's so far deep into our cultural DNA that it's like, that's why it's so powerful. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, and that's where you get these sort of tropes about the full moon and, you know, the rainy night where it seems like almost a nightmarish state is entered by the characters as they're referencing their dreams. They're always waking up from dreams in yeah. this film. Yeah. Uh, I, 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 you know, the, uh, you know, and Nightmare on Elm Street obviously makes this uh, explicit. Yes. But the implicit uh, message is that when, you know, should, you know that, that the line becomes thinner. You know, I mean, right. be between dream, nightmare, and reality. You know that that you know horrible things that occur in your mind, you know, can bleed out in a real way into the real world, and that's exactly what happens with um, Pamela. Is uh, she has this nightmare image of haunting J- her? Uh, you know, Jason telling her to, you know, calling for help, telling her, to, you know, it, like she starts speaking in his voice. If I were to ever do a Friday the 13th movie, if I were ever to be creatively involved with it, uh, I, I would delve into the involvement of the Christie family that is mentioned several times in the first movie, but after that, almost completely forgotten. Yes. I, I now remember them talking about it in the second movie. Well, and for anyone that isn't aware of what we're talking about there, the family that operated this camp all along, like back when Jason drowned, was the Christie family, and now... Probably, you know, their son, a guy, you know, in his 20s or 30s, has reopened the camp or is in the process of reopening the camp. And that's basically the catalyst for all of this stuff going down now. The the, the Christie's have a a camp on Crystal Lake. Right. Kind of uh, interesting (laughs) with the naming there. (laughs) Not so creative, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) It's Crystal Lake, and they're the Chris. Well, that's kind of like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that's hard to figure unless they got naming rights for the the lake. And right. Yeah. Like, oh, that'd yeah. be cool. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think that the one of the cool things about this film is that the idea that it takes one really bad rainy night where like the rain is constantly getting in people's way and it's yeah. blinding them and it's isolating them and yeah. it's causing problems with, you know, the power and somebody, you know, they, they give up on a really great game of strip monopoly because some girl has to rush back and close <laughs> yeah, the windows of her like, cabin. Yeah, she couldn't just come right back. <laughs> it's like, yeah, she should go get killed. I'll, I'll, be, I'll be right back. I'm going to go get murdered. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, I mean, see, here's the interesting thing about watching Friday the 13th, the first one, is uh, I don't think that they had uh, a supernatural element really in play. Like, when there's bad dreams or even, you know, uh, dead Jason popping out of the water, that's, like, very clearly a nightmare sequence. And we watch the character wake up, and she's surrounded by doctors who are telling her that's safe. So it's like, but given the fact... That in the later movies of the series, it actually does turn supernatural. He comes back from the dead. He's now a zombie. Like, we get weird shit like a telekinetic chick and blah, blah, blah. You know, it's it's easy to look at this one and go and, and look for the, 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 the elements that could be subtly supernatural or weren't intended to be supernatural but pay off in a supernatural manner a little bit later. Because, I mean, in movie one, we see the character Jason Voorhees as an undead creature who jumps out of the water and grabs a girl. And it's like, and I would say that's one of the other genius things about, you know, about this movie is that specific scene. It's like, there's a genius in realizing that the best thing you can do with a horror movie is to scare the shit out of the audience right before they leave the theater. 
Yes. It's like, you know, oh, dude, you gotta see the whole movie. Oh, you gotta, you gotta see this. Oh, my God. Ah. The word of mouth advertising is so important to this, this genre. Um, and it definitely, you know, created a stir with that. And the film is very much designed to be an intense and grueling experience for the audience. And mm-hmm. I think that's something that they keep going. Uh, they maintain throughout the films. And even though this one has a much more slow paced than its subsequent sequels, uh, or a lot of movies that we're used to today, there's some parts of this film where it's like, oh, we're wandering in the woods or poking around with the generator or bored in the in the cabin that you just wouldn't see today on, on many levels. It's obviously a low-budget movie that needs to pad its running time with some stuff, and it's also of an older generation of movie in which, you know, you could get away with a scene where we just kind of watch a character make a cup of coffee. You know what I mean? It's like, you know, we, we should go through the whole process yeah. in one long take. Yeah, I, 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 that, that's actually something that drives me absolutely insane when I watch um, older movies. It's like, you know, we'll, we'll watch characters walk all the way up the driveway to a door, shit like that, that in the, yeah. you know, and that, that, you know, if, if there's one thing that MTV did for American, <laughs> uh, for American filmed culture, it was to murder that shit. Yeah, Yeah, pacing has improved. Let's talk about Ralph, the kooky um, messenger from God, as he styles himself. Yeah. Uh, This is a village idiot, or drunk, or both, or whatever. However, we do learn that he's married and his wife is worried about him at one point. Yeah, that's true. I find funny. Um, (laughs) But he he tools around on his bike and wears his fishing hat and and really melodramatically pronounces all of his warnings. Like, his read on, there's a death curse, is so bad. You're doomed! Uh, my, my my favorite moment is uh, when he uh, he leaps out of the pantry to yes. uh, to to deliver his message of doom, and yeah, and you can tell it's just like, hey, you know, we, we kind of want to have like a little bit of a scare here because we want, uh, you know, so it's like there's a bunch of jump scares in this film. Yeah, so it's like you know, l- l- let's uh, you know, let's kind of liven up this beat with a little bit of a jump scare, but uh, it, in which he leaps out of the pantry, but that also presupposes. That this character was just quietly standing yes. in the pantry for who knows how long. Right. Just standing there staring at the door in the darkness until <laughs> waiting for, okay, you know, think, thinking to himself, okay, it sounds like, all right, they're in the kitchen now. They're rustling around. Oh, it's only a matter of time. He's just skulking around in the canned goods for God knows how long. I have to wonder how how long was he in there? I, I, I need to have been in there for hours. Do I, I organizing the beans? You know, right. just like twiddling his thumbs. You know, and finally, okay, here's my big moment. He's the door opens. You're doomed. It's so ludicrous what You're happens. <laughs> it's 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 like Pamela just chilling under the bed, look, looking up at these this young couple's like impression of the match above her as they bang and just being like, well, I could kill him now, or, well, I don't know, maybe I'll wait a little bit longer. Yeah, I, I, I mean, that's the thing, is, like, <laughs> I, I, you know, one has to almost picture her lying there under there with, with this arrow clutched in her sweaty palms. Yes. Uh, or maybe it's on the floor and she's reading uh, People magazine. You know what I mean? She's waiting for the two to separate so she can grab one or the other. It's like, well, I don't know if I can take down two quietly enough, so yeah. I'll wait for yeah. one to go. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's like, so, and in the meanwhile, she's just lying there thinking, they're doomed! They're doomed! <laughs> <laughs> so 
out of that? Why are they copulating on the job? Yeah, Boy. they're just watching the yeah the, the mattress bounce in her face, slapping her in the forehead. Let, let's all right. The next thing I want to talk about, and it's kind of a big thing, is, is sort of tracking her progression from the point that her son drowns to where we meet her mm-hmm. at the end of this movie mm-hmm. and in relation to Jason. And I think it's interesting that he drowns a year goes by. She's probably just doing the, you know, the grieving mother thing. Yeah. And then she happens to, does she stumble upon this couple who evoked the memory of the camp counselors who were messing around while her son was drowning. And then that just drives her into a murderous rage. I think it was... Well, I, or is she, it premeditated? Well, I mean, she walks into that scene with a bladed weapon of some kind in her hand. You know, so right. it's like, I, I, I think that, you know... Well, given, she is the cook. Yeah, I, I think that given the POV shots of that opening sequence, she's watching them and simmering. You know yeah. I mean? And, you know, she gets a kitchen knife and follow... And when, when the two kids break off... Sneak follow, off. Yeah. You know. yeah. But I mean, I, I, again, thinking of this movie from Pamela's POV... Uh, I would guess that she her character is about fifty years old. I mean, if mm-hmm. I were just to eyeball it, okay. So she's fifty years old years old in nineteen eighty. So how old would she have been in nineteen fifty seven when her son Jason Voorhees died? Yeah, I uh, just figured out how many years it was. Yeah, yeah, it's twenty two years later. Yeah, so I, I mean, we're talking about a woman in her, her in her late twenties. Uh, not that much older than the camp counselors who are running this joint. You know what I mean? Uh, and she is apparently a sing- would, single mother. Yeah, she would have been 28. Yeah. Single mother, 28 years old, with a son who, uh, if you were to eyeball him, is, you know, six or seven. You right. know, so... Right. We could easily say that, you know, uh, we have a 21, 22-year-old woman who gets knocked up the dude runs off. She's left to fend for herself. Uh, she scores a gig as a cook at this camp, which is very seasonal. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? She's probably living, you know, this very precarious existence, hand to mouth. You know, she's always trying to keep a roof over their heads. You know, and this one seasonal gig to the next. You know, and and she's dragging along this young son who we come to find out in later movies is also uh, mentally handicapped. Yes, and uh, physically uh, as well. You know, the other kids make fun of him. Absolutely. Well, Tom Savini's makeup design has him as a, a mongoloid. You yeah. know, like that's basically the idea, what they're evoking with the makeup, and that wasn't in the script. But clearly, he can talk though. Like we 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 get an art, relatively normal sounding voice from this kid when he's drowning. Yeah, but I, but he's got like a weird shaped skull and, and yeah. a funny face. You know, so it's like yeah. a, so you're assuming he's picked on and he's bullied and he's ignored and treated like crap. And, and you know, she's. But she can't do it. She can't just grab the kid and leave because she needs the, the scratch. Yeah, you know what I mean, yeah. So there's like, no Daddy Voorhees. We know that. Or, yeah. So I, I day in and day out, she's slaving in that stupid kitchen to make scrambled eggs for these awful kids, these horny punks, and young adults who are tormenting her son over here. You know, they let him stick around because it's a camp for youth, even though he's way younger than and he's younger and weirder than the other kids, so they're mean to him. And, you know, you could easily come to the conclusion that they would have been really quick to quit fucking and jump in the water if it was 15-year-old Susie Creamcheese out there. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, but it was, you know, it was because of her troubled son there. It's like, nah, fuck him. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're at, at best neglectful, at worst, like, you know, completely um, taking no responsibility for his welfare. Yeah, I mean, they didn't give a shit. It's like, and so I mean, we have a woman who's been in a stressful situation, is in a stressful situation, and it's like, you, you but she soldiers on because she loves this kid. You know, it's still her son. I mean, he's, he's ugly and he's weird, but he's still a sweet kid at heart. You know, I mean, I, you listen to the voice that she evokes, and it's, Mommy! He's her little man, and he's the reason that she's going to deal with Dad running off and her working this shitty job, and they let him drown. You know what I mean? At a right. camp where they teach swimming, and my son drowns? She has the line where uh, Jason was never a very strong swimmer. Yeah, well, I mean, he's seven <laughs> years old, and he's, and he's born weird. You know, it's like, so it's like... uh I, I, anyway, you can see how all of this adds up to a woman who becomes broken and murderous and, you know, cannot, you know, discern one young, horny camp kid from the next. You know I mean? They yeah. almost die. Well, I mean, I think that the, the inference that we're supposed to take from her demanding, essentially, that this camp never reopen is that other kids... Innocent children will, you know, befall the same fate that her son did because these counselors are never going to take proper care of them and bad things will happen. So she's doing this in a, in a larger sense to keep children safe, like is sort of the motivation implied in what she's doing because like she's dead set on this camp never reopening and so she she does her little acts of terrorism uh quite a few years go by 22 years go by i'm really interested in what happens during those 22 right right so she's obviously in the area but you know god knows what she's doing how she's getting by but she's not actively homicidal for a long period of time yeah Exactly. It's like, yeah, I mean, for all we know, she's working in that diner where uh, Steve gets a cup of coffee right. and flirts with the, the older woman. Yeah, it's like, I mean, she, she might be the other waitress on the swing shift, you know, mm-hmm. and then one day Steve comes in and he's like, yeah, it's Steve Christie what, are, of the Camp Crystal Christie's? Right. Why, yes, I'm reopening my parents' thing. And, you know, the camera pans over and there's <laughs> Pamela, you know, taking an order and her head slowly rises and she turns in slow motion and goes... Camp Crystal Lake. Yeah, <laughs> I kind of like the idea of, of Ralph telling her. Like, Ralph is the one that breaks the news. Oh, yeah. Like, uh, hey, Bella, did you hear? Those kids are doomed. <laughs> what kids? Who's being doomed? <laughs> They're going to reopen Camp Crystal Lake. They're doomed. <laughs> yeah, you bet your ass they are. <laughs> it's like, right. <laughs> not yet, but I'll give you a minute. <laughs> yeah, and he obviously, uh, Steve Christie, the owner of the camp now, he recognizes her. Uh, so their paths have definitely crossed. I mean, if only back in the day when he was like a, a young, like a kid, or yeah, he was a kid himself when she was originally working at the camp. Yeah. So who knows how long their relationship goes back, um, and how responsible she holds him is obviously not that big of a factor, or he'd already be dead. Yeah, she she <laughs> she waits for him to be a murder of opportunity. Yeah, I mean, I mean, she actively sets a trap where she 
you know, shines the light in his face. But yeah. I, I, it's not like he goes first. You know, I, I right. because it's implied that he's been up at that camp, absolutely doing a lot of work by himself for days. Yeah, yeah and yeah. Uh, and she's left him alone. So it's like, yeah, you know, I one has to wonder if like maybe there was a mental chrysalis period. Finally, she's made the decision that they must all die, and she jumps in her jeep to go up there and fuck with them. And what do you know? She picks up the hitchhiker chick. Mm-hmm. You know I mean? Who's going there? Yeah, yeah. And, and that's it's basically she's like, okay. I either she's on her way up to the camp with the intent to murder or else it's like it's just on the surface and then when the chick is like yeah uh, you know the bubbly hitchhiker girl is like yeah I'm going up to Camp Crystal Lake she's like that's it yeah I mean who knows that could even be where she snapped in some way yeah know? because I, it goes from like a friendly pickup to like uh, you, 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 she just starts driving really fast and erratically right, I, right. I mean, you can almost see the character like you know get, get like this this stern look on her face and the, the, the foot lowers on the pedal yeah yeah, she's ramping up inside and uh, putting the pedal to the metal of her own psychosis. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it could very much be an innocent thing. Like, this is still the kind of woman that would just pick up a hitchhiker and give her a ride. Like the trucker. Yeah. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. It's just like, yeah. So, yeah, but, yeah, it's, it's like Crystal Lake. You know, it's <laughs> like, uh, yeah, I, 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 mean, I, I keep thinking of uh, Steve Martin and I, I Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid. You know, the cleaning lady. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. Right, exactly. It's the trigger word. It's her Manchurian <laughs> candidate. Yeah. Like, but, uh, yeah, I, 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 I'm kind of circling back around to Steve Christie. I, I have to wonder what his backstory is, because 22 years ago, I'm, I, I, so he's a kid, and yeah. I, I, the character is obviously, like, late 20s, maybe 30. Yeah. So he's a kid, maybe even Jason's age. He might have even been friends with Jason, because in terms of age, they're, they're, mm-hmm. they're closest. They're yes. at a camp for preteens and teens, and there are a couple of the two seven eight year old kids who are just there because their parents work there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, my mom and dad own the place. Your mom works in the kitchen. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? And they're the two seven year old kids who are throwing rocks. And uh, yeah, I, yeah. So it's like they, and, you know, there's there's an entire separate backstory in which we see their friendship sour. Right. Yeah, you know I mean, Steve himself could have become the killer. You know, you let right. my best friend drown, or maybe he's racked with guilt. Like he could have saved him, but he wasn't around. He was too scared. He was never a good swimmer either. But right. anyway, and you know, he he shares the family love of driving jeeps because yeah, exactly. It's, just, it's, like, <laughs> <laughs> it's like, but yeah, it's like twenty two years go by. And suddenly, out of nowhere, this dude gets a bug up his ass to reopen the place. So what happened? And mom and dad, Pat, you know, keep the land and let it lie fallow. And then they pass away. It falls to him, and it's just like, well, I could sell it, but no, actually, let's let's reopen it. I, I maybe there's a, a family like you know, maybe due to the fact that like it was probably a successful place that his parents were very proud of until there were the murders and the fires and the disasters and the weird shit, mm-hmm. you know, and. You know, for all he knew. They had at least 20 good years because it says established 1935 and, you know, Jason drowns in 57. Yeah, exactly. So it's like it's the family business that gets derailed by horrible luck. Yeah. You know, to his mind. You know what I mean? So it's like, you know, uh, perhaps he's going to be the guy who's going to regain the family legacy by reopening Crystal Lake and he's going to bring it back to his former glory. It was like, you know, that there was a patch of shit that happened. And I, for all we know, his parents went bankrupt or something like that. There could have been a lot of personal angina on his level, too. Absolutely. I mean, I, 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 it's funny that it's so clearly like a late 70s, early 80s movie because there's like the whiff of like 60s hippieism around this movie. Yes. Uh, like Steve himself is like this dude with like short curly hair and like giant, you know, glasses, but he walks around in like denim pants and no shirt. 
Yeah, well, and he's a shameless horn dog with his staff here. And, yeah, and he, like, he's actively hitting on our girl, uh, Alice. And he's a 30 year old guy who's looking to bag some 18 year old strange. You know what I mean? And it's just like, yeah, I, 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 for all we know, like he's been working in, a, in an office somewhere and he inherits the, the space and goes, you know, why don't I take my shirt off and hang out with some teenage girls all day? Yeah, let's Yeah, he makes a reference at the diner uh, to the babes in the woods, and I mean that literally, more or less. Oh, well, yeah, that's so. true. It's like, I mean, is this guy just, just a, a dude who likes to hang out with teenage girls? Maybe, yeah, it's like, because I mean, one look at that character and you go, yeah, if it's not a Jeep, it's going to be a van with a wizard on the side. You know what I mean? <laughs> yes. So when you think about the relationship that Jason and Pam have in this movie, where it appears that he is constantly talking to her, I wonder when that started exactly. And, you know, if you want to look at the sort of supernatural possibilities... What do you think of the idea that, like, he is dead in this lake? Maybe they never found his body. Maybe they did. I don't know. Mm-hmm. We'll put that aside for now. Yeah. Um, his soul is in this lake. And is it possible that he begins tormenting her by driving her to action? Because it is truly the homicidal rage here, the impetus to kill no matter what, you know, even if you're dead, uh, that unquenched unstoppable bloodlust that we've come we ultimately associate with Jason Voorhees is it possible that that is just the energy that's driving this movie too and he's just right now he's just talking to her um, to get it going right well I, I, I think um, if we're going to connect Friday the 13th to uh, you know this movie to its supernatural you know descendants and also to horror as a whole. Like, the more I look at this movie, the more I think in terms of J-horror. Where, yes. uh, you know, or, or even, you know, some aspects of Stephen King. The idea that, um, that you know, the, the very King-esque idea that you can have a place that's just bad. Like, you know, I mean, you, you bury a body here, it's going to get up and kill people. You know, it's like, or, you know. Yeah, the is- Crystal Lake almost took Jason in the first place. Right, but I I, I mean, due to the fact, I I I'm, you know, kind of like The Shining, where it's like right. it was an Indian burial ground and la la. But I don't think that's the case because uh, it was, like you pointed out, it was able to operate in complete peace for twenty years. Yes, no ghosts, no homicidal killers, la la. It took the the act of Jason dying to set everything in motion. So I think it's more along the lines of the J horror concept that an act of evil creates its own entity. The Grudge right. specifically. It yeah. deals with this idea. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, running garage, uh, pulse to a certain way. It's like, you know, I, I, when you do an evil thing, you know, that action actually becomes a noun. You know what I mean? That floats around and, and starts putting off its own re- radioactivity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's mm-hmm. this spiritual plutonium. The energy does not dissipate, it merely transfers. Yeah, so it's like, a, so Jason's death turns Camp Crystal Lake into, like, a, a Stephen King-type bad place. It gets into Pamela, you know, because she's the most vulnerable. You know, you look at, like, Blair Witch Project, where it's, like, um, there's the witch herself, but there are also, like, the crazy hermit who kills the seven kids. You know, I mean, it's the idea that it's infectious. You yes. know, it can pass around. It's like, if you hang around here, you're gonna, you are gonna be... <laughs> in this case, I think, though, now that I've contemplated it a little bit more, 
the way I interpret it is, yeah, the event happens and he's dead. And then she, Pamela, is the generator of all of this homicidal anger. Yeah. And it only compounds over the decades because her son doesn't come back. Her life doesn't get better. She doesn't have another son. She just more or less is in this holding pattern of misery. Yeah, her it, life becomes about that event. Yeah, exactly. And and it just increasingly is tormenting her. Like, she's literally seeing him drown and hearing his voice, his cries for her to help him, and she can't because she's not there. So it's tearing her in half. So then she commits all of these murders, Mm -hmm. and it's like a sacrifice and a tribute to his spirit, in a sense. And it creates a ton more bad juju. Mm -hmm. And then that energy... It could resurrect him, theoretically, and or the idea that by... Her dying right there on the shore of Crystal Lake, right, is with, with an eye shot of where he drowned. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. That that is the the act that demands vengeance, and so her homicidal rage could transfer upon her death directly back into the lake and to him, and give him the strength to come forth now. Yeah, yeah uh, and yeah. carry on the the family. So it's it's really like the evil in this case is their twisted love and their relationship and the bitter desire for revenge that they they share and that gives each other strength. Yeah, I, I think that, uh, you know, part of this is also the idea that on, on, on some level, you know, they're really, really lifting from Psycho. You know I mean? It's just like we, we, have, yeah, uh, we, we, have, we, have, we have a weird mother-son relationship. I mean, it's basically Psycho in reverse, in which instead of having, you know, mother, you know, dead in the basement. The son is dead in the lake. Yeah, it's it's, it's basically just Psycho in reverse. I, I it Coming straight down to, uh, you know, the, you know speaking in the dead character's voice, you know, oh, mother, what have you done? This, this is still on several levels a derivative film. It's like, you know, let's do a Halloween-type slasher movie and rip off Psycho uh, straight down to uh, the score. You know, I mean, uh, which is really, really reminiscent of the Psycho score. You know, it's like it's like you know, mm-hmm. dee 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 dee, you know, just the entire thing. It, it's derivative in the sense that it's using its influences to create something new, so old that it's new. You know, to plug into very primal stuff, I, I, and that's why Halloween works. Whereas, I mean, it's a boogeyman story. You're home alone. You're babysitting the kids. You hear a weird sound outside. Ooh, is it a Psycho? Escape from an insane asylum? This time, yes. It, similarly, I mean, you're a kid, you're away from home for the first time, um, you're out in the middle of the woods with a bunch of people who you barely know, uh, you know, uh, you hear a weird sound in, in the woods. Oh, is that a psycho killer? No, it's just a rabbit. No, until it, no, actually it is a psycho killer. Here's a crazy one who's hacking up kids. Yeah, and it's interesting how they continue to tell themselves that everything is going to be okay, and and it is simply by not acknowledging the potential threat around them that they allow themselves to be drawn one step closer to their doom at every turn in this film. Well, yeah, it's like, I, I, I mean, that's, you know, weirdly enough, they, they doom themselves be, by being sane. If your immediate thought is, oh, there's a murderer in the woods, then you're no better than Ralph. You know, yeah. Ralph actually becomes a foil. Ralph actually dooms them by making it silly to think that there's something Yeah, because dangerous. he he's, cannot be taken seriously. You know, yeah. it's so obviously this unhinged, wide-eyed... 
uh, paranoia on his part that, you know, well, I don't want to be like that. You know I mean? I, I'm, she's, pr- the girl proudly says to, uh, the first girl, when she's picked up by the truck driver, she proudly says, well, you know, I'm not afraid of ghosts. Yeah. You know, she essentially actively scoffs, you know, yeah. I, 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 she has to drag it pulling teeth out of the truck driver and he's like, don't go, do not go there. And she's like, oh, come on. And we're totally on her side because I, yeah. in, in her situation, I would say the exact same thing. Oh, I'm like, you better not go go up to uh, Camp Goofball because, you know, you might get murdered by uh, by an evil ghost. Whatever, dude. Okay. Da, 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 da. Well, that's another thing that these films always allow audiences to do and that people really enjoy doing, which is second-guessing the decisions that the characters make, you know, as exemplified by that classic watching a movie reaction, don't go down that hallway! Yeah, well, I, 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 I mean, that's like one of those, you know, stereotypes of the genre that, that somehow took hold in uh, the zeitgeist that doesn't actually have a whole lot of basis in the actual movies. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. this, this idea that the crowd is like, oh, you dumb girl for opening that door, why would you do that? You know, la la. It's just like, in, in her situation, you wouldn't open that door? It's like, and that makes total sense. Right. I, I, you really think there's a psycho killer? Yeah, the only reason that you would think that she's done is because you as an audience member know that there's a uh, killer on there. So. Yeah, it's that audience being ahead of the characters thing that you always have to kind of watch out for. Yeah, it's empty calories. It's a false sense of... of Superiority. You know, yeah, exactly. Oh, I wouldn't have done that because I would have known, thanks to the magic of cinematic editing, that there was a killer on the other side. You know, it's like... Next time I'm at home and I hear a weird sound on the other side of the door, I'm going to just call the cops. You know, it's just like... Yeah, Yeah, ideally, though, like, there's films, I just saw The Ruins again pretty recently, and I feel like I can get behind almost every decision that the characters make throughout the whole film. And I think that that exempt, you know, that enhances the power of the scares and and the tension. Whereas in this film, like, there are those little moments where... Nightgown girl goes out without her raincoat is hanging right there. Yeah, and I mean yeah, I know it's not going to yeah. save her life, but it makes it somehow seem a, that much sillier that she goes out with her flashlight because she hears what she believes is a child calling for help, which is really creepy, by the way. Yeah, and I love the way that plays out, mm-hmm. and because it's very very subtle. It's like you know the, the movie allow you know they pull the sound bed all the way back to just the rain and and the room tone. Yeah, yeah, she's sitting there reading a book, and yeah. it's very quiet, and except for the rain, and then suddenly she just hears, help me! Yeah, and, 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 and I, I, way distance. And I, I love that mm-hmm. uh, in a very realistic manner, like the first time it's so faint that she reacts to it, but doesn't majorly react to it. There, there's there, like, The audience is right there with her thinking, yes. did I just hear something? You know what I mean? Uh, and it's only when it's a little bit louder you can go, oh, yeah, I did hear something. And, and that's extremely natural. And it's like, I, I, and if you hear a weird sound outside, like the first time you hear it, it's just like, eh, yeah, whatever. But it's like, you know, the second time it's like, wait, is there a dog outside? What the fuck? You know, it's like, yeah. yeah. Well, the best thing about these films is their ability to plunge the audience into the shoes of the characters. And we experience what they're experiencing along with them well, on I, a visceral level. Yeah, I, I think that's the primary power of the horror movie. That's it. It's what makes it my favorite genre. Is it's, it's like a weird mind control experiment in which you take a bunch of strangers who don't know each other, put them into a darkened room, and we're going to show you images on a flickering screen. And you're going to re... And, and those images are going to come together in such a way with the sound 
that you're going to react as if the body were in visceral danger. Yeah, you know I mean, and yes. the, your heart rate will be accelerated. You may sweat, etc. Like, like your forebrain knows you're looking at an image of a killer, an actor playing a killer with fake blood. No one's actually dying. Well, you're consciously aware of that, but the film still triggers a reaction as if that were reality. You and subconsciously that, respond as though it were reality. And that is, to my mind, like the most uh, 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 direct example of the power of cinema. Completely yeah. agree. Yeah. yeah. And, and so, but in order to pay that off, you need to create characters that the audience can engage with. Well, it's interesting the visceral identification in these films is with the killer because of the point of view. Like, we most directly share the point of view of the killer. Yeah. Because that we're literally seeing through their eyes in the films. Well, you know, I, I, I that's very interesting because we see the POV of both the killer and the killer's victims because on the one hand... We, we don't see, you know, a direct cinematic POV of, say, Steve Christie, you know, but uh, we we understand who he is psychologically. Right. You know what I mean? Like, right. like, we know who that guy is. We know, you know, we, we can understand what's going through his head. Well, I mean, we were watching things through Pamela's eyes through much of the film early on, but we yeah. have, we know nothing about whose eyes we're looking out of. It could be a man, it could be a woman, it could yeah. be a ghost, yeah. it could be a griffin, but... We then, when you know, on the other side of the camera, we get to know those people in a more traditional way. I think there's definitely a movie to be had, a slasher movie in which the killer turns out to be a griffin. <laughs> it's, like, it's a half eagle, a half lion leaping out of bushes. That's really upset because it's chick drowned 20 years ago, and no one. Somebody made an omelet out of it. <laughs> yeah, made an omelet out of the griffin egg. <laughs> 20 years go by, and the griffin is back. <laughs> there's a lot of eggs in this movie like you look over yeah, their kitchen no, and there's just like two dozen eggs in their kitchen well the set design I, I, I mean it does make yeah, I mean, uh, you know set designer was like well it's a kitchen for a, a camp they're gonna be making a big batch of scrambled eggs every day that's Let's, right kids love scrambled eggs yeah come on, kids come around for the way. but it's like but yeah it, it is interesting it's like the, the movie is giving us Two POVs, the literal cinematic POV of the killer, uh, but the POV as an understandable human being of the victims. You know, I mean, it's like, yeah, so it's, you know, the one is literal, the one, the other we have to work a little bit for. You know, the irony is character work is as important, if not more important to movies of this nature than, um, than you, you know, some drama where... You know, it's people standing around, they're talking about their feelings, and, oh, you did this to me when I was a child, and blah, blah, You know, it's like, because, I mean, we're just watching people bicker. You know, it's like, it's like you know, Breaking Bad. You know, it's like, yeah, there, there's a, you, know, you watch that show, and you go, oh, look at these people, and they're getting into emotional and harrowing situations. You know, it's like, it's drama. You know, drama with a D. But it's like, you know, the horror movie doesn't work at all if you're just watching what you know to be 18-year-old actors getting drenched in fake blood. You have to be able to engage with those characters on a human level if you're going to trigger the power of the horror movie. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's the suspension of disbelief. And yes. you have to forget that these people are just constructs being in, you know enacted take after take by people that are you know, trying to get their SAG card or whatever else. Although I, I, I will say that there is a moment in uh, Blackula in which uh, Blackula throws a barrel 
uh, he's way, standing way up on this catwalk, and he throws a barrel in and clocks a, a, a cop who's walking by. <laughs> and uh, you know, it, it's it's a you know when I when I look at that scene, my immediate thought is like, oh shit, I wonder how many takes that took. You know, <laughs> how many barrels did that actor have to throw to, to get that shot? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you can even step aside on one level and think about, oh, that's a great shot, or, oh, that lightning effect is really cheesy when they just turn on the 5K in front of the, the actor. Yeah, yeah. I, but it I, still doesn't really take you out of the movie. Yeah, no, it, it's like, I, I, and you kind of smirk at it, but it's not enough to completely puncture the whole thing. It's like, I, I specifically, I, you know, it's funny because, you know, the two things that you just mentioned actually uh, uh, occur back-to-back, because there's the beat... In which Kevin Bacon is talking to his girlfriend, and uh, you know they're reacting to a coming lightning storm, and the lightning is reflected by someone uh, flashing a very orange light right right in their face. Yeah, you know I mean, um, you know, you gotta put some blue gel on that, man. You know, it's like <laughs> if, if you're gonna make it work, if you're gonna pay it off. But um, uh, but it's immediately backed with uh, what, to my mind, is one of the more beautiful shots. Yes. And it is that very uh, long take of just the dark water of the lake lapping up on the yeah. beach. Is I mean, there are two great shots, and that's one of them. And the other one is that sunlit shot of at the very end with the girl on the lake right before Jason pops up. Yeah, I mean, this a, DP really knew how to shoot water, you know, in yeah. multiple different lighting conditions. Like, yeah. there's all these cool reflections, and the shimmers are really ethereal and spooky. The, I, I, it's very much a DP who's coming into the gig thinking the lake is is, is a character. You yeah, know I mean, it's like, you know, I, I, when the danger is on its way, when the storm is literally going to come, you know, I, the lake is a very spooky place, la la. Well, it's funny how many films the lake is a character in. I mean, oh, like, yeah? it, it plays into the films in many interesting ways later on where it literally becomes his prison again for quite some time. That's true. I, I mean, again, if I were to ever do a Friday the 13th thing in which I was creatively involved, I would, I would, I would center it around the Christie family and the actual lake itself. Mm-hmm. You know I mean, I would turn that lake into like the cemetery and pet cemetery where it's like there's some, you know, the, the sins of this, there's so much evil has occurred around these waters then now, I mean, if you drink out of that motherfucker, you're in trouble. You know what I mean? Exactly. Yeah, it's yeah. like, yeah, it's just a bad place. It just sinks, like, the sins and evil that have occurred around here just sinks like silt to the bottom. Yeah, and there's many the layers of so dark secrets in this, uh, and, and, and souls that are not at rest. Yeah, dude. All right, yeah. well, we're not going to rest. We're going to come back and talk about uh, part two not too long from now, hopefully uh, a week or so after this episode drops. So uh, keep an eye out for it. Hope you enjoyed it. Uh, If you have any comments or questions, you can post them to the website or you can hit me up on Twitter at J-O-H-N, F as in Frank, underscore Evans. And, Mike, do you have a Twitter handle or anything you want to publicize? Uh, oh, God. I, I do have a Twitter thing, but I can't remember what it is because <laughs> I, I'm never on there. Uh, you know, but I, I guess I should be on Twitter now so I can... Anyway, I, 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 you can Google me up. I'm around. All right. You can Google Mike Kuchak. I'm John Evans. Thanks so much, uh, and we'll see you next time. All right. Take it easy.